waited for Tesla to scale its operations with the Model 3 before investing in it, you missed out on 2,000, 3,000% gains. If you waited for Amazon to become the e-commerce behemoth that it is today, you missed out on thousands of percent of gains. If you waited for Microsoft to become the computing giant it is today, you missed out on thousands of percent of gains. The people who made big money in those stocks were those who had the foresight and the courage to see what wasn't there and invest in what could be. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by the one, the only, Luke Lango. Luke, how are we doing today? Uh, we're doing good. We're doing good, Aaron. Um, stocks are bouncing back today on a, on a cooler than expected CPI print, so we'll get to that later. But yeah, doing well. I think the uptrend that we established in mid-March is uh, continuing and will persist, so all, all good over here. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into all that in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, and the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Uh, we got a ton of things to cover uh, and to catch up from last week, so let's dive right in. Uh, first off, I want to check in on some of the stocks that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. And first up yeah. is, you know, your bank, SoFi. Uh, I want to check in on that. There has been, um, since last we talked, President Biden has extended the federal student loan payment moratorium by uh, four more months. And as you know, well know, SoFi is uh, started as a student loan company. Does this mean anything for SoFi? Right. Yeah. So does it mean anything for SoFi? Yes, of course it means something for SoFi. So a big part of SoFi's business today is their student loan business. Again, to your point, that's how they got started. Uh, the company was founded by a couple of Stanford grads who firsthand were sick and tired of um, the very inefficient student loan process, the heavy fees associated with it, the lack of speed associated with it, the lack of convenience associated with it. And so they developed SoFi uh, to become a digitally native, hyper convenient, low fee way for um, students to refinance their, their loans. And that's the company's hero product. And as their hero product, the company's still very young. So that hero product is still a very large portion of the business today. But the reason that the student loan moratorium does not impact my overall bull thesis or the extension of, of the moratorium does not uh, impact my overall bull thesis on SoFi is because it's kind of like saying, let's say Amazon 2002 and the government ordered a ban on selling books online. Uh-huh. Well, Amazon got its start by selling books online. Very true. In 2002, selling books online was a very big part of the business. Very true. But how important is selling books online to Amazon today? You know, 20 years down the road, selling books online is a meaningless afterthought in the Amazon technology ecosystem. And I think that's the way you got to look at it with SoFi is that, yes, the student loan moratorium might represent a large port or the student loan, I keep saying moratorium as it's part of their business. Now, the moratorium <laughs> is impacting them. The student loan refinancing is a big part of the business today. But what this company is trying to build is an all-in-one financial super app, an ecosystem that comprises all parts of the consumer banking uh, process. And in that process, student loan refinancing is a very, 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 very small piece of the pie. If SoFi succeeds in creating this empire, which we believe they will succeed in doing so, then in five, 10 years, student loan refinancing is going to be an afterthought to them, just as selling books online is an afterthought to Amazon today. So that's why long term, we are hardly impacted by the uh, student loan moratorium or the extension of student loan moratorium. Now, even having said that, yes, it's going to have an impact on the short term trajectory of the business. But still in 2022, even with this moratorium, even with a large part of its business put on hold, essentially, the company is still going to grow revenues by about 50% year over year in 2022. 
the uh, margins of the business are still going to double uh, in 2022. And EBITDA in the business is going to triple in 2022. So even with a large portion of his business put on pause, this company is still going to grow at rates that the rest of the market is completely envious of. And that speaks to the robustness of the underlying business momentum here. This is much more than a student loan refinancing business. It is an all-in-one digital finance super app that is quite frankly going to reimagine consumer banking as we know it. So near term pain, long term gain. We said a couple of weeks ago, insiders are buying the heck out of the stock, including the CEO, Anthony Noto. Very smart, very well respected guy, former CFO of Twitter, CFO of the NFL. Very, 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 very seasoned business exec. He is buying his stock hand over fist. You should join him. So far below 10 bucks is an absolute bargain. This is a hundred dollar stock by 2025. Buy and hold, you're gonna make 10 times your money. I'm very confident in saying that today. Awesome. Uh, second second uh, stock I wanted to check in on uh, that's having its own issues is NEO. Uh, again, yeah. the last time we kind of talked about it and when we've talked about uh, China's um, moving forward with their COVID protocols, it seemed like the your perception was that they were gonna kind of loosen up a little bit Production was going to continue with NEO. Um, it seems like that hasn't happened. It seems, uh, I'm going to read this quote real quick. NEO has suspended production as COVID has caused supply chain partners in Jilin, Shanghai, Shanghai, and many other locations have suspended the production because of COVID outbreak and have yet to resume. Uh, what's your take on that? Uh, temporary backward looking. Um, okay. Yes, the China did crack down on COVID-19. There's been a wave of lockdowns that has hurt production, obviously. Neos had to suspend production of vehicles. But if you look at the more recent news flow over in Shanghai, our thesis has always been that there is no way the Chinese government institutes 2020-style lockdowns with success in 2022. Mm -hmm. Because... The Chinese consumer is not isolated from the world. The Chinese consumer is connected to the world via the internet. The Chinese consumer knows what's going on in the rest of the world. And the Chinese consumer knows very well that COVID-19 is not a risk large enough to be shutting down entire cities and entire economies. So there has been significant pushback, as we expected, to these, these lockdowns. Whether or not the Chinese government would listen to that consumer pushback, that's the major question. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that China is a very proud country. And when they set economic targets, the government sets economic targets for a certain year, as they've done for 2022, they want to hit those targets. Locking down cities, locking down economies, shutting down production, coupled with a very angry general populace, is a cocktail for missing your economic target. So we were always under the impression that China's zero COVID policy was going to not go away, but gradually adjust over time to be more like what it is in the rest of the world. And we are starting to see that. In Shanghai, the Chinese government is starting to compartmentalize the city. So in 2020, they had just citywide lockdowns where no matter what zip code you were in, what building you were in, everything was locked down. That's how things started in Shanghai. But over the past week, they have shifted to compartmentalized lockdowns where, okay, this part of the city, COVID cases are surging, we're going to keep it locked down. This part of the city is getting better. Let's reopen it a little bit. So this compartmentalization is one of, is the beginning step towards shifting the zero COVID policy towards a live with COVID policy. To that front, now let's talk about NEO. When we look at NEO, yes, this first wave of lockdowns was significant was totally world stopping in China. And that's why Neo had to suspend production. But it looks like the evolution here is towards much less severe lockdowns. If this evolution persists, as we believe it well, then the current suspension will not last very long. And Neo will get back to producing cars and its factories will be back at normal operating capacity within the foreseeable future. As that happens, we expect the company's growth narrative to once again start kind of firing on all cylinders. They got the European expansion. They got the ET7 new model launch. Um, we have, again, we've heard murmurs of, of an American expansion going on. We have the Chinese government supporting their listing on foreign exchanges. So outside of the COVID lockdown situation, the NEO growth narrative looks pretty good. Once we get past this lockdown situation, and it 
feels like we're already evolving from it, mm-hmm. that will allow Neo stock to continue to resume what was its big bounce. Remember, it bounced from that $14, $13 level all the way to 2022, 23. It's given back some of those gains to around 20. We're still up big from that low. We think that rebound persists as these lockdowns evolve into much less severe lockdowns, which allow for continued robust production of neo-electric vehicles in the in the country of China. And how, how much does the supply chain issues also play a role when it comes to NEO specifically, compounding with the the what you just discussed with COVID? Um yeah, well it's 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 a huge thing. The supply chain is is a big part of the NEO growth narrative. They got to produce cars to sell cars. Um, global supply chain pressures as measured by the New York Fed's new index, the global supply chain pressure index have been moderating for several months because everywhere except for China, uh, the COVID-19 lockdowns, uh, restrictions are meaningfully easing and uh, significantly improving. That's why the global supply chain pressure index is moderating. Supply chains are improving everywhere except China. China has taken a brief step back, but we think this is a brief step back and will once again get back to improving supply chains. So we think that NEO supply chains both in China and globally, because they get materials from everywhere, are going to continue to improve. And that's going to continue to provide support for this rebound rally in NEO stock. So at $20, still bullish on NEO. think the stock is way undervalued and a great play for 2022-2023. So your, your bullish thesis on NEO, does this translate to other Chinese stocks? Or is NEO just kind of that you know, that convergence of things that you like to see in a business? Um, or is it, are these issues that we're seeing with China affecting other Chinese stocks? Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a great uh, question. No, we are generally not very bullish on, on China just because there are so many geopolitical and economic risks over there, delisting risks. There's a lot of things you got to consider. So in order to get involved in a Chinese stock, you have to be very, very confident, have a very high conviction in that company specifically. NEO is a company we just have a very high conviction in. Their EV technology is very strong. Uh, they're really thinking about autonomous driving the right way. Their branding is very strong. They're expanding globally. We think that that's just a very strong narrative. When you look at something like Tencent, Alibaba, Billy Billy, there's a lot of names over there, Baidu. Um, it's a case-by-case basis. I think you only get involved in names over there that you are really, 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 really confident in, that you think have really, 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 really good long-term growth prospects. NEO is one of those companies. Most Chinese companies are not that to us. So no, overall, we are not overwhelmingly bullish on China, but we are pretty bullish on a very select few uh, Chinese stocks. NEO is one of them. Awesome. Well, not just China, but again, a lot of other countries, we're seeing uh, some chatter, I would say, about some increasing concern that the the way that the, the world economy has functioned for, uh, in a global economy is starting, to, we're starting to see some deglobalization fears. Um, yeah. Before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of that, can you explain globalization and why it's been so important to our viewers? Yes. Okay. So globalization really got started in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan had the free markets, open trade philosophy, and that was the, the bedrock for the globalization movement. So we went from very insulated economies where the U.S. made all of its stuff domestically Uh, to this globalized economy where we took advantage of comparative advantages. And one of the largest comparative advantages that countries leveraged in the globalization movement was cheap labor. So we started producing things in China and India and elsewhere where labor was really cheap. This has been very important over the past four decades because it has done two things. One, it has for, you know, by and large avoided war. When you are a globalized economy and your own economy relies upon the success of other economies and you're not insulated, you are less likely to wage war against your trading partners. So that it's really kind of underwritten this idea that we haven't really had large scale warfare over the past four decades. 
Uh, at the same time, it has really driven inflation lower. It has been a massive deflationary force because, again, like I said, one of the largest comparative advantages that we're leveraging globalization is cheap labor. As opposed to making things for $20 per hour labor, labor in the United States, we're making it for 2 to $5 per hour labor in China or in India. And that is allowing the cost of goods for companies to be dramatically lower than it would be otherwise, which is allowing them to sell things at lower prices. It's a massive deflationary force. This deflationary force has basically been a huge propellant for the stock market to move higher, for tech stocks to move higher, because deflation is naturally good for the stock market and um, tech stocks. There are fears now that because of the Russia invasion of Ukraine, this whole four-decade globalization movement is coming to a close. And now we're actually getting an anti-globalization movement throughout the 2020s, wherein because supply chains have been proven so fragile by COVID-19, and it now being that fragility sentiment is now being exacerbated by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, companies in the U.S. are sick and tired of waiting for product from China to show up and therefore are going to nearshore, is the term, or onshore their mm -hmm. manufacturing. So they're going to take the factory that's in China and they're going to plop it in America. That is a not a fear, that is a thought about what may happen over the next decade. We're not very big believers that that is really going to happen at a scale that is worrisome for inflation. Because when you think about it, if you take a factory in China and you take that entire factory and you plop it in the U.S., mm -hmm. the cost of operating the factory in the U.S. are going to be significantly significantly higher than the cost of operating that factory in China. Companies like money, they exist to make money. They exist to make profits. By onshoring, simply onshoring and doing nothing else, taking the mm -hmm. factory in China and just putting it in the U.S., they are going to significantly increase their costs, significantly cut their profit margin, significantly reduce their profits. Mm -hmm. A company's not that stupid. It's not going to make that decision. So what is going to happen? We should not paint this um, movement with such a broad brush, right? We need to be more specific. What is mm -hmm. going to happen? Yes, globalization as the trend existed over the past four decades is going to evolve, but it's not going to evolve into anti-globalization. It's going to evolve into two things. One, a shift away from dictator authoritarian regimes, and two, a shift towards localized automation. So on the first part, Apple just announced that, hey, we're going to move some of our iPhone manufacturing capacity out of China. Where mm -hmm. are we going to move it? India. Okay? So, like, if you have this totem pole of mm -hmm. cheap labor to expensive labor, where cheap labor is on the bottom and expensive labor is on the top, Apple didn't go from super cheap labor in China and skip 18 pegs to the most expensive labor in the country and in, in the world in America. No, they went up one peg to India. Right. So they just got out of an authoritarian regime, went to a more democratic regime and are manufacturing in India where labor is still cheap. That is not anti-globalization. That is not nearshoring or onshoring. That yeah. is simply shifting out of authoritarian regimes. So we think that is symptomatic of what is going to happen with globalization over the next few years. People are going to basically shift out of China, go to Taiwan, go to India, go to other places where labor is still cheap, but you're not jumping, you know, 50, 60, 70% in labor costs. So that's one part of what's going to happen. The second part of what's going to happen is localized automation. So companies are going to localize some things. Some factories are going to come back to the US, but only in instances where the companies can do so cost effectively. So the cost basis of operating a factory in the United States or a manufacturing plant in the United States is comparable to operating it in China or India or somewhere where labor is cheap. Now, how do you do that? You replace labor with robots. You basically take this factory in China that has, say, 30 or 40 workers, and you plop it in the United States, but you only have five workers with five robots. So your labor costs are going to be the exact same. Your productivity is going to be the exact same, yet you, you're able to nearshore and onshore that. So that's why we think one of the major investment themes of the 2020s is going to be the adoption of automated technologies, which enable localization, which enable onshoring, which enable nearshoring at a cost that makes sense for companies. 
So how do you play this? Well, for us, the best way to play it is to buy companies that are going to enable, that are building the technology that will enable localized automation. We're talking robotic stocks. We're talking AI stocks. We're talking software stocks, automation stocks. Those are the stocks that we really like to play this whole movement that's going on. But fears of this anti-globalization sparking rampant inflation for a decade or more, completely overblown, not going to happen. Companies love money too much to let that happen to their profits. Are, is, are we, would we see an impact in, you know, like as of right now, we're seeing uh, obviously an impact in the price of oil. Uh, you know, we get a, a portion of our oil from Russia. Obviously, that's not happening right now. Does that mean we get that oil from somewhere else? Or again, one of the things that we've been talking about over the last few weeks is alternative energy. Does it mean we start investing a lot more heavily in ideas like that? Yeah, so that, that's an entire other facet of the movement. I was talking more about the making of goods, the production of goods. You're mm-hmm. talking about the sourcing of raw materials. Yeah. Um, commodities specifically. So that's an entire other thing. I think on that front, what this does is it accelerates the transition towards um, clean energy. Because the reality is, and I think we've talked about this before in these very podcasts, is that Energy independence is a huge theme. That's what everybody wants right now, right? After the Russia invasion of Ukraine, you know, it makes no sense. Russia invades Ukraine and my gas in San Diego, California goes up to $6 per gallon. What the heck, right? Give me energy independence so that when Russia invades Ukraine, my gas prices don't go up. Okay, cool, right? So energy independence is a huge theme. But what people misunderstand is that energy independence via fossil fuels is a complete mirage. It's a house of cards, Because fossil fuels, by their very nature, are non-renewable. They're going to run out. The U.S. has enough natural gas to power itself until like 2070. And then it's done. And then it's gone. So you want to achieve energy independence through fossil fuels. Well, you're only going to get energy independence for the next 50 years. Mm -hmm. Then what? Then what do you do? You can't get energy independence through fossil fuels because all the fossil fuels are gone. Right? Mm -hmm. That's not to mention that, let's say Europe cuts off Russia, right? They don't want to get natural gas from Russia anymore. They don't have a lot of natural gas just naturally existing in Europe. So as their trading partner, as their ally, we got to supply them with natural gas. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, our natural gas timeline gets cut down to 2060 or 2050 and not 2070. So now you're talking 30 or 40 years as opposed to 50 years. That's really not that long. Yeah, You know, that's not that long. So from that perspective, energy independency of fossil fuels is a mirage. It is something that is unsustainable, not to mention uh, with the Europe example, it's not really equitable because fossil fuels, again, by the very nature, not only they're not renewable, but they only exist in certain parts of the world. Some places have abundant fossil fuels, other places don't. Therefore, energy independence via fossil fuels is unsustainable and unequitable or inequitable. It is not the right answer here. The right answer is energy independence via renewable energies because the sun shines everywhere on earth uh, and the wind blows everywhere on earth mm-hmm. and the transportation of that stuff is is very easy and the sun is not going to blow up anytime soon. And if it <laughs> does blow up, we have much bigger, have problems. bigger problems than, than if we uh, like solar versus uh, oil. Right, exactly. Uh, so um, yeah, we think that the right answer here is, and the answer that we believe many companies will shift towards is energy independence via renewable energies, big on solar, big on wind, big on hydrogen, big on energy storage systems to back up all that renewable power. Uh, and so we think that is the movement that happens here. Now, with respect to inflation, how does it impact inflation? It actually is deflationary because solar, wind, hydrogen, and ESS have very, 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 very positive learning rates. Now, mm-hmm. we talked about learning rates in a previous podcast. Learning rates is basically the more we build of something, do our cost to make that thing go down? Mm-hmm. Do we learn more about the technology to make it more efficiently so the cost of production go down? Fossil fuels do not have a positive learning rate. Clean energies have enormously positive learning rates. Therefore, the more we build out clean energy infrastructure, the more we deploy clean energy, the more we learn about it, the more those costs are going to continue to drop and the cost of energy globally is going to drop. That's a deflationary force, which mm-hmm. will continue this multi-decade trend of, of deflation um, in, the, in the United States and globally. Um, so it's actually a positive on inflation. Well, that actually, all of that just brings me to the next thing I want to talk about is, uh, you know, with what's going on with Russia, the EU is revisiting its own dependence on oil. 
Uh, one of the things that they're they're looking into is uh, hydrogen, which I don't think we've talked about at all on this podcast so far. But I know that you're you you like hydrogen a lot. Um, they so again, uh, it looks like the EU climate policy chief uh, made you know some some quote that said that basically they're looking to divert from oil and looking into hydrogen. Uh, mm-hmm. Before we kind of get into it, can you talk about why you like hydrogen? Okay, so why I like hydrogen? I'm surprised you haven't talked about it before. Given I don't think I don't think we've talked we've talked about solar, we've talked about batteries, uh, we've talked about storage, but I don't think we've talked about hydrogen specifically. Shocking, shocking. All right, yeah. okay. So, um, quick elevator pitch here. Oversimplification for the chemists in the room. I'm sorry if I butchered this, <laughs> uh, but I'm trying to be trying to be quick here. The cliff note versions. Um, yeah. Chemistry 101. Periodic table. Uh, very upper left hand corner. You got H with yep. a little number one by it, right? That's hydrogen, mm-hmm. okay? That chart, its location on that chart, tells you that hydrogen is the lightest element in the universe, okay? As the lightest element in the universe, hydrogen, you can fit more hydrogen atoms into a certain amount of space mm-hmm. than you can any, uh, anything else in the universe, in the knowable universe, okay? So what that means is that something powered by hydrogen, a thing of hydrogen, a fuel cell of hydrogen, will always be scientifically more dense than, energy dense than a battery or fuel cell of anything else of of a similar size. Energy density is key because energy density is what allows these things to last longer, drive farther, recharge faster. The denser it is, the better it is. So hydrogen, theoretically, as the most energy dense uh, fuel substance of any sort in the world, can be the dream solution for a lot of things. Right now, uh, electric vehicles... Uh, they work great in passenger cars where you're getting 400, 500 miles of range in the top tier vehicles like the Lucids. Mm-hmm. But trucks, trucks need to go thousands of miles. 500 miles ain't going to cut it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. 500 miles is maxing out that electric battery. It's not going to get much more. You're not going to get much more range out of it. You're not going to squeeze many more miles out of that. Maybe mm-hmm. you get to 600. That's why people are working on solid state batteries because that'll mm-hmm. increase it to thousands. But solid state batteries are still quite a ways out. Hydrogen powered trucks, meanwhile, take out that, that battery, that electric battery, put it in a hydrogen fuel cell. All of a sudden, you can start to get 800, 900,000 miles. So mm-hmm. in long range, heavy duty transportation, hydrogen fuel cells make a lot of sense. In places like forklifts, hydrogen fuel cells make a lot of sense. Ships, they make a lot of sense. Airplanes, they make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So hydrogen, in the fast forward to the future, the clean energy future, what we think is that hydrogen is going to work alongside uh, battery electric vehicles okay. and that battery electric vehicles are going to power your car, uh, maybe buses, city buses, short-term transportation, mm-hmm. right? When you talk about long haul, when you talk about heavy duty, when you talk about transporting big things like planes and ships, Uh that's where hydrogen shines brightest. And that's where we think hydrogen is going to be. So hydrogen, long haul, battery electric, short haul, that combination is the the clean energy future. That is the scientifically and economically most efficient for society. So that's why we're super excited on hydrogen because everybody's pumping up uh battery electric vehicles right i mean you have tesla as a trillion dollar company you have lucid you have rivian you have all of these big names over here but in hydrogen what do you got you got plug power and that's that's pretty much the only name in that industry that is known by folks who are not you know hydrogen experts Mm -hmm. And so to that extent, we think there's a lot of opportunity in the hydrogen world to find the next Tesla, find the next Lucid, find the next Rivian. We think those are going to be some pretty big opportunities. So why, why do you think that the EU chose, or at least the, um, uh, the, the chief policy climate guy, <laughs> Franz, 
I'm looking at his name right now. Uh, Franz Timmermans, why he, he's focusing on hydrogen over some of the other uh, alternative energies that we've talked about, solar, wind, et cetera. Uh, yeah, let's see. Okay. Why is he choosing hydrogen? Because they understand the science of what I just said. Okay. Uh, Europe has been a leader in hydrogen. They have committed a lot of resources to researching this stuff, investing in it, developing it. And they're very ready to embrace the hydrogen revolution at a time when the urgency is very high. Uh, mm -hmm. They get 40% of the natural gas from Russia. That needs to change. Hydrogen is a great substitute for natural gas. That's why you're seeing Europe embrace H2. That's why we think there's going to be a lot of economic opportunity for H2 in Europe over the next 12 months, basically. And we think that extends over the next five years. So that's why the Europe policy chief guy, in your words, uh, has, um, has decided to embrace I couldn't find his name in my notes. <laughs> um, but so how feasible is that switch? How fast is this switch uh likely to happen um with that kind of play yeah i mean infrastructure needs to get built out you need a lot of electrolyzers to do this you need a lot of green hydrogen plants um you need a lot of solar because that's how hydrogen does not exist in its own anywhere so you uh -huh. need uh energy sources to basically power the hydrogen so you can do gray hydrogen which is natural gas and coal dirty hydrogen you don't want that uh -huh. you have blue hydrogen which is a mix of clean and dirty and then you have green hydrogen, which is a hydrogen produced from clean energies. And green hydrogen is where Europe is trying to go. That's where the whole world is trying to go. So you need a lot of solar infrastructure built out, a lot of wind infrastructure built out. So it's going to take time. It's definitely an evolution. It's not a snap of the finger and all of a sudden we're in a completely hydrogen-powered uh, Europe. But that evolution is starting. What actually started two or three years ago when Europe started to really invest in and research uh, hydrogen technologies so the evolution started. Now it's going to start accelerating and it's going to keep accelerating and keep accelerating. Point being, now is a great time to just get into hydrogen stocks and just ride the tide higher because the tide is going to keep moving higher and higher and higher and higher. Mm -hmm. And the best stocks in the industry are going to keep going higher and higher and higher and higher. Rising tides lift all boats. Awesome. Uh, well, I want to shift gears a little bit, uh, kind of going into actually just saw uh, an article about this today was the housing bubble. You know, we've touched on supply and demand forces before. Uh, before we kind of go into what's going on with the housing bubble, can you recap what uh, quickly and explain what's changed over the last few months when it comes to uh, uh, real estate and housing? Yeah, sure. OK, yeah. Um, housing market's on fire. We all know about that. Uh, prices have exploded in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic because of an elevated sense of the value of a home mm -hmm. um, when we're all locked away and that elevated sense has a value has persisted. Um, supply is exceptionally low. High demand, low supply leads to rising prices. Affordability was also um, not really a huge issue because low interest rates were supporting a lot of the uh, rise in prices and allowing people to afford homes that they wouldn't be able to afford at interest rates were at six, seven, eight, nine percent. Um, what's changed over the past three months? The interest rates have gone up dramatically as the Fed has embarked on an aggressive quantitative tightening cycle, and that has pushed the uh, 30 year fixed mortgage rate in the United States above five percent for the first time in a long time. That is what some may consider a beginning of the bursting of a housing bubble mm -hmm. but we have not seen prices react um in a way that would imply a bursting uh home buying activity is still very robust home prices continue to go up and up and up and so the record high more not record high the multi-year high uh mortgage rates that we're seeing today are not bursting the bubble Mm -hmm. If anything, they're actually exacerbating the bubble because there is a consensus out there that interest rates are going to keep going up. So mm -hmm. there's a consensus out there that mortgage rates are going to keep going up. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of home buyer demand out there, a lot of people that were waiting for a dip. And now they're seeing mortgage rates go up, so their affordability is slipping. So they are rushing to get into the market. You're bringing more demand into the market. Meanwhile, supply is still very, 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 very low. Mm -hmm. Um and that new supply coming online is not coming online very rapidly because those builders, the home builders, 
are also being impacted by higher interest rates. A lot of their building of homes is financed by debt. Mm -hmm. So higher interest rates basically give them less to work with, meaning they're not building as many homes and they're impacted by lumber shortages. They're impacted by some of the commodity price uh, increases that we are seeing across the economy right now. So the supply demand imbalance remains very imbalanced mm -hmm. in the housing market. And that's why home prices continue to go higher. Mm -hmm. uh, our base case outlook for the housing market in 2022 and in 2023 is that home prices continue to increase at a mm -hmm. three to 5% rate, maybe 6% in 2022, mostly because even if mortgage rates go higher, mortgage rates do not determine home prices. Mm -hmm. Home prices are a function of supply and demand. Mm -hmm. And supply is going to stay low. Demand is going to stay high. That's a recipe for continued home price appreciation. And so we think that while the housing market won't be as hot in 22 as it was in 21, um, it's still going to be pretty strong. And that the, the activity and the prices there are going to keep going up. So that's, that's our outlook on the housing market today. How much does location of where you're looking to buy a home play into these prices uh, continuing to rise, you know, somewhere, somewhere like with people yeah, being able so to work from home. Seeing, yeah, go ahead. With people being able to work from home, you know, they, they can, they can move to their dream location. A lot of people want to flock to where it's warm in Florida versus, you know, nobody's, I don't see a huge amount of the population work from home going to Alaska to do their work from home. Uh, yeah. so, so how much does location pay, play into the increasing costs of, uh, real estate? Uh, yeah, I mean, location obviously plays a big factor in determining where people are going to buy and, and what type of home they're going to buy. But what we're seeing is a nationwide increase in mm -hmm. prices, a nationwide increase in home buying activity. And so this is not location specific. Uh, it's nationwide. And to that extent, I think that, yeah, you're seeing bigger home price appreciation in a place like San Diego and Phoenix. So they're actually the two hottest markets right now. Mm -hmm. um, and less so in probably, I don't know, Baltimore. No offense, Aaron. <laughs> um, but um, it, it's still appreciation everywhere. And it's still mm -hmm. a strong market everywhere. So it's not like supply is robust in one place and not that robust in other places. Mm. And I think something else to consider is that the reason that it's more equitable gains across the nation is that in places where um, demand may not be as strong, supply is also very limited. So like Baltimore is not building any new homes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very established place. It's a very dense place. And the supply is the supply. Mm -hmm. A place like Phoenix, where there's a lot of land, the city's building out. They're building lots and lots and lots and lots of new homes to accommodate the lots and lots and lots of new demand that's flooding the market. So at that dynamic, the supply side of things is what's allowing for an equitable rise in homes across the country as opposed to like this city's super hot and this city's super cold. Mm -hmm. Every city's kind of the rising tide lifts all boats. Hate to go back to that saying, but that's what we have in the housing market right now. <laughs> uh, there, there is ongoing chatter that the rate of home price appreciation is slowing. Um, yep. is, is this something that's happening? And if so, what does this mean for investors? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely slowing. And that's like totally normal. I mean, we were okay. what, going up 20% a year in 2021. That's not mm -hmm. sustainable. That's not going to continue. The mm -hmm. fact that we're still rising at four, five, six, seven percent 7% after a year like that is pretty remarkable. So home price appreciation is definitely slowing, but it's slowing much less slowly than I think mm -hmm. a lot of people anticipated. After a year where you're up 20%, you expect a flat year or a down year. We were up 20% and we're still growing. So that's pretty remarkable. <clears throat> it speaks to the very, um, I'm going to say strong, because if you're a home seller, it's strong. If you're a home buyer, you're, you're mad by it. But that speaks to the supply-demand dynamics in the mm -hmm. housing market being uh, so pronounced in favor of sellers that it's allowing home prices to keep going up despite a massive year in 2021. So yes, uh, HPA is slowing, but it still remains very healthy. What does that mean for investors? Still got to play the housing market. I mean, home builder stocks have been absolutely destroyed uh -huh. over the past three months on this anticipation that higher rates are going to kill demand. I don't see that happening. They're so washed out and they're so cheap that you're probably going to get a nice bounce in those stocks over the next few months and, and years. 
something else to consider here is the demographic trends, right? Mm-hmm. The demographic trends that you have two huge groups of prospective home buyers entering the market right now. The first group are baby boomers. And baby boomers are entering the market because they're downsizing. There's, mm-hmm. This ties into the Great Resignation. A big reason why we have the Great Resignation is a lot of the baby boomer generation is entering retirement age and they are retiring from the workforce. Usually when you retire from the workforce, you simultaneously consider downsizing and or have already downsized. Mm-hmm. So this huge portion of the workforce that is retiring is simultaneously downsizing. That is entering a huge pool of buyers into the home market. On the other side of the spectrum, you have millennials that put off home buying forever and ever and ever and ever until the 2010s, both because they were scarred by 2008. They saw their parents lose their home. They saw their, their friends' parents lose their home. They were scared of home ownership. And two, because they didn't have the money to buy a home. Mm-hmm. So now that those fears of buying a home are sort of fading because mm-hmm. all of a sudden this is a generation that likes to work from home. This is a generation that can work from home so they're starting to see the value of a home and they're making a lot of money they finally have money to buy a home that huge demographic is entering the home buying market in force so you have these very large demographic tailwinds supporting the demand side of the equation in the home buying in the housing market um, and that should continue to propel strong um, home price appreciation for the foreseeable future at least that's that's our base case outlook uh, for the market well, while we're talking about the housing market, we do have a relevant fan question from our boy, Rob Norman. Uh, he has a question uh, that related to Open Door. Uh, Luke, what's the difference between pot stocks and Open Door? Aren't they both low margin businesses that can't scale? That, that is a fabulous question, Rob. I'm really, I'm really glad you asked that because it does, it will allow me to highlight the scalability of Open Door's business. Okay. Um, they are both low margin businesses, no doubt about it. Open Door runs at around 15% gross margins, um, maybe 20% in a really good market, but normally 10 to 15%. We think it's scale there, 15% gross margin business. Pot stocks, very similar gross margin profile. So both very low margin businesses. The difference is that Open Door's low margin business is highly scalable, and cannabis companies' low margin businesses are not scalable at all. So where is the scalability in Open Door's business? The scalability comes from economies of scale. Mm-hmm. You Open Door, they operate in one market. They buy 10 homes, sell those 10 homes, get a 10% gross margin on that. Let's say they make, you know, a buck a home. They make it super easy math, right? So now they got $10. They have to allocate that $10 across all their operating expenditures. Let's say their operating expenditures are um, eight bucks, then they're profiting two bucks. Okay? So that is one market. Now let's scale it and let's say that Open Door is now operating in 100 markets or 200 markets. And let's say they're now selling thousands of homes and they're making $10 on each home. So let's say they sell 1,000 homes, $10. Now they're at $10,000. Now they have their operating expenditures, that OPEX space doesn't scale with the business. Mm -hmm. It scales much less than the business. That's where the economy of scales come in because this is a fixed, uh, a largely fixed expense business outside of the the home um, Mm. buying price because they have operations in Silicon Valley. They have operations in Miami. They have their engineers. They have one model that needs to price all these homes. That model doesn't, its expense base doesn't grow each time Open Door goes into a new market, right? It's the, the same model. So the actual expense base of the company does not grow as the business grows and 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 grows because that's how quickly they're growing. That's why I said so many grows. So Open Door then all of a sudden is selling thousands, tens of thousands of homes at that 10% gross margin. Yes, the gross margin doesn't go up, but their gross profit goes up while their OPEX dollars do not go up a proportionate amount, leading to massive scalability and huge profit production at scale. The difference with pot stocks is that the OPEX base goes up with the, the sales of the, of the products because they have marketing expenses, they have distribution expenses, they have production expenses, they have expenses that actually grow up proportionate with sales. There's no scalability unlocked there. Their net profit margins will never be that large. Open door, well. Same thing happened with Amazon. So it's literally the Amazon model. 
Amazon scaled very nicely. So mm-hmm. will open door. That's the difference between open door and pot stocks in terms of scalability and margins at scale for the business. Well, I'm sure Rob is going to be very pleased with your answer. Um, shifting gears a little bit. Uh, we missed this last week because, again, we had a lot of stuff going on. Uh, but we just want to kind of check in with the stock market. There's kind of what the big three of what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Uh, the Fed, the Russia-Ukraine war, and uh, China COVID. We kind of touched on China COVID already. Uh, can you just, is there anything new that we need to like know about uh, the, the big three right now? Uh, well, today we got we got an inflation print. Uh, the March CPI came in. Um, headline numbers were hot, but the core number was actually much, much weaker than anticipated. Uh, core CPI rose 0.3% month over month in March. Mm-hmm. That was well below the expectation for a 0.5% core CPI increase month over month in March. It represents two consecutive months now of deceleration on core CPI. And it is the weakest month-over-month reading on core CPI since September 2021. So you're starting to hear lots of chatter now about inflation peaking, about inflation maybe coming down. Important to note that March reading, March was a wartime month. The the war started in late February. Mm -hmm. So March was a full month of war and core CPI decelerated meaningfully in March. That's a pretty positive signal. It also lines up with the fact that, again, we talked about earlier in this in this podcast, the New York Fed's global supply chain pressure index is coming down. Mm-hmm. Supply chain pressures are easing. China instituted new COVID lockdowns, but those COVID lockdowns are evolving to be much less strict. So you're starting to hear uh, Biden just all of a sudden is now, now allowing for 15% ethanol uh gasoline to be sold um in the summer months when normally it's not allowed to be sold in summer months so getting some supply um relief over Mm -hmm. there as well so you're starting to see this 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 chatter on the street that inflation pressures may be peaking now important to note they're peaking right at the time when the laps are going to start getting tougher because you have to remember, inflation hasn't putting up huge numbers, no doubt about it. But it's been lapping against really, 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 really easy year, uh, year ago comps. So mm. for the past eight months, we've been lapping against inflation from 2020. That was 1%, 1.2%, 1.5%. In March, we got up to 2.6% on the year over year CPI year ago lap. But now all of a sudden in April, we're going to get to 42 Mm-hmm. And then in May, we're going to get a 5% reading. And then for the next, you know, from there on, we're at 5% plus, 6% plus, 7% plus readings. So inflation is naturally decelerating okay. ahead of what will be much harder comparable periods alongside increasing supply relief in the commodity cycle and in the commodity uh, world and alongside an evolution in COVID lockdowns in China to be much less intense. Mm-hmm. You put all that together, you connect the dots, you put the puzzle together, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, maybe inflation is actually going to meaningfully cool into summer and into the back half of 2022. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the Fed's hiking rates into this, right? Mm-hmm. So that's going to naturally erode demand and be a downward pressure on inflation as well. So you're looking at the back half of 2022. Maybe all of a sudden, as opposed to saying, oh, my God, inflation's so hot, we're going to be saying, oh, my God, inflation's falling so quickly. (laughs) Now, with that narrative shift comes a pretty big lift for the markets, a pretty Mm. big change in stance from the Fed. I still believe, despite the hawkish rhetoric recently, that at its core, this is a very dovish Fed, Mm -hmm. a very dovish Fed. They're just waiting for inflation to come down waiting for inflation readings to start being 3%, 4% as opposed to 8%. And as soon as they start seeing that, you can bet your bottom dollar they are going to ease up on the hawkishness and start becoming less um, or start becoming more dovish. Um, That pivot, lowered inflation, that is the sort of backdrop against which stocks should succeed in the second half of 2022. So that's why we're pretty convinced we're actually due for a a stock market melt up here mm-hmm. as opposed to a stock market meltdown. And we believe the next 12 months will be pretty positive for, for equities and especially for tech equities and growth equities. Mm-hmm. Well, we're also uh, heading into earnings season. Uh, and before, just again, for our casual listeners, can you just, before we go into what to look for in that and what to expect from that, just can you go really briefly go over what is earnings season? 
Earnings season is when companies report earnings. Companies, if you're a public company, you are required to report your financial statements uh, four times a year, once mm -hmm. every quarter at the end of the quarter. Uh, that includes your income statement, your balance sheet, and your cash flow statements. And earnings season is when these companies come out and report those statements, report those numbers. And it's how the market gauges the financial health of the company uh, over the past three months. And usually management gives some guidance or some commentary about how business is trending and where they think business will trend over the next three months. So it's basically a, a pulse check on the financial health of the companies that are publicly traded. So what are we looking for going into this earnings season? Yeah, so this earnings season is going to be pretty pivotal because it's going to tell us, okay, what are companies thinking about the war? Mm -hmm. uh, this is the first time we're going to hear from uh, U.S. companies uh, since the war broke out. So it's going to be the first time we hear from management teams saying the war is a massive deal. It's going to kill demand. It's going to spike my prices. Or the war is not a big deal. Business as usual. We're continuing to chug along just fine. Yeah, there's some minor impacts here and there. Um, companies are going to sound one of those two tones. Okay. If they sound the former tone stocks are due for trouble okay if they sound the latter tone stocks are due for a rally okay we're pretty convinced they're going to sound the latter tone mm -hmm. mostly because we continue to believe the actual direct economic impacts of the russia invasion of ukraine uh in the u.s are pretty small to this mm -hmm. day um outside of maybe soaring oil and gas prices um we think the impacts are pretty small so we think we're actually get some pretty favorable commentary from companies this earnings season and we think that's going to allow the markets to continue what has been a pretty strong rebound rally off the mid-March lows. Awesome. Well, uh, that's our stock market check-in, segueing into our crypto market check-in. Uh, Short-term struggles kind of continue. Um, is there anything new here that you're seeing in the crypto space? Uh, yeah, so I mean, Bitcoin's formed this, technically speaking, Bitcoin's formed this sort of parallel channel um, from a you know mid-January low. It's been on an uptrend. Mm -hmm. uh, yesterday was a very pivotal moment, Monday, because it collapsed to the bottom of that parallel channel, the support level of that uptrend, and then it bounced right back today. So it looks like Bitcoin wants to stay in this uptrend. It's okay. a very gradual uptrend. It's a very mm -hmm. slow uptrend. It's not one of these rip your face off rallies. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it held, the fact that it bounced off that level, the fact that it's still in this channel, pretty positive, pretty positive. Bitcoin continues to track equities. Cryptos continue to track equities. We're constructive on equities. We think equities can go higher from here. Therefore, we think that Bitcoin and cryptos can continue to go higher from here as well. What's interesting enough is that Bitcoin collapsed from about 45 to 39 and change mm -hmm. during and after the Bitcoin Miami conference. Okay. And the Bitcoin Miami conference was rah 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 Super Bowl. You didn't hear a single negative <laughs> thing about Bitcoin or cryptos over there. Uh -huh. Yet Bitcoin and crypto prices collapsed during it. I don't know if you can read too much from that, but if you were to read anything, mm -hmm. it's as an investor, you need to forget the rah rah rah. Okay. Right. There's a lot of rah 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 in Cryptoville. A mm -hmm. lot of rah rah rah. It's the future. It's going to take over the world. We're going to a million bucks. La-di-da, la-di-do. You got to ignore the rah-rah-rah. Mm -hmm. okay? The market's ignoring the rah-rah-rah. You should too. You need to focus on the fundamentals. You need to focus on the technicals. You need to mm -hmm. focus on the optics. You need to focus on what's really driving price. And that's not this rah-rah-rah sentiment from Bitcoin Miami. Um, <laughs> when you look at those other things, though, they are positive. They're just mm -hmm. not rip your face off, screaming, pounding on the table positive. You know? Mm -hmm. We're not going to $100,000 like that in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Will we get there probably within the next 12 months? I think so. I think okay. it's entirely likely Bitcoin parades its way to 100K, but it's going to be a gradual grind. Mm -hmm. Okay, You got to get the 50 first. Let's get yeah. the 50. <laughs> then once you get the 50, let's get the 60. Yep. Then let's get the 70. And I think it's going to take out those levels. But again, it's going to be this grind, not this rip your face off rally. And so I think you stick with Bitcoin, you stick with cryptos, you stay bullish, mm -hmm. look for opportunities when there's massive plunges. Yeah. But you don't fall for the Ruara hype that I'm going to buy today and double my money in a month. That's not yeah. going to happen in the Bitcoin world. Um, and so let's, let's give up those pipeline dreams. 
and let's focus on actually compounding our wealth in these investments over a significantly long period of time. And that's what we're doing with cryptos right now. Awesome. Uh, well, wrapping up with our fan questions, uh, okay. CS Lowe, uh, what does it really mean when the Fed says it wants to reduce its balance sheet? And more importantly, how will it affect the stock market in general? Thanks, CS. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, a, that's a great question because everyone's talking about the balance sheet runoff, reduction of the balance sheet. Yet, I bet nine out of 10 people that are talking about that have no idea what it actually means. So that's a I don't know what it means either. So I'm really looking forward to the answer. <laughs> this yeah, one. Here we go. Here's, here's the, the very basic level. Yeah. Um, the Fed went out and bought a bunch of treasuries, treasury securities. Okay. Now, when they buy those treasury securities, they hold them on their balance sheet until maturity. Okay. What they typically do is that once they buy it on the balance sheet, hold the security to maturity, once it matures, they actually reinvest in the same security. So let's say they bought a 10-year, the 10-year matures, then they go out and buy another 10-year once that 10-year matures. So the balance sheet stays steady, right? Everything that expires gets replaced by a new security of the same maturity, like a loop, right? Mm -hmm. Balance sheet stays stable. When they say balance sheet reduction, balance sheet runoff, what the Fed is going to do is all those securities they bought, once they mature, they're going to let them run off. They're not going to reinvest that money. Okay. So once that 10-year expires, it runs off and that's that. That's the end of the story. There is no loop of refilling the balance sheet. The balance sheet does not get refilled. That's the reduction. That's the decrease in balance sheet, in the Fed's balance sheet that everybody's talking about. How does that impact markets? Fantastic mm-hmm. question. What it does is it gives the Fed more control over the long end of the treasury yield curve because the Fed, when they go out and buy these assets, these treasury assets, these treasury securities, they're not buying short term. Mm-hmm. The bulk of the Fed's balance sheet of treasury securities is on the long end of the curve. It's in that, that five to 10 year range. That's where they're buying their, their securities. So when they let them run off, what that essentially does is it boosts the long end of the curve by reducing prices on the long end of the curve. So that's why when you hear about rate hikes, mm-hmm. rate hikes tend to lift the front end of the curve. Mm-hmm. Because they literally track, the three-month literally tracks almost step-for-step step verbatim the effective Fed funds rate. So when mm-hmm. the Fed hikes rates, that changes the front end of the curve. But when the Fed lets its balance sheet run off, when it reduces its balance sheet, that affects only the long end of the curve. It doesn't mm-hmm. affect the short end, right? So that's why when you started to see this rhetoric about $95 billion a month from the Fed minutes that they're going to let their balance sheet run off by $95 billion a month, which is a big number. Mm-hmm. The last time the balance sheet run off was 2016 to 2018. And during that, or 2018, 2019, actually. And during that time, the runoff was like 10 billion to 50 billion a month. Mm-hmm. So we are well in excess of that with this $95 billion proposal. Once those minutes were released that confirmed the $95 billion a month reduction, you saw the long end of the curve start to whoop, go crazy. You went from 2.3 to 2.4 to 2.5 to 2.6 to 2.7 to 2.8 in a matter of like a week. Mm-hmm. Like you just went crazy on that end. So the net, the net impact of the Fed's runoff, balance sheet runoff, is that it's going to send the long end of the curve higher. And that's why it really matters for stocks because that long end of the curve, that 10-year treasury yield specifically, is really what investors, stock investors, focus on when benchmarking valuation. So mm-hmm. if the runoff continues to send that end of the curve higher, stocks could be due for some trouble. But we believe our base case here is that the long end of the curve is really kind of out of sync right now. The mm-hmm. 10 to three month spread is blown out. It's yeah. completely blown out in a way that you do not see at this stage in the game. We are late cycle expansion. We are Fed hiking rates. During that time, you usually get a 10, three-month spread of about 25 bips, 50 bips, 75 bips. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're at like 200 bips. It's just mm-hmm. blown out. We don't think that can get blown out much more. We think it actually compresses as the Fed starts tightening. So we think the long end of the curve is pretty stable around 3 3.2% by the end of the year. That's our target. We're at 2728 right now. That means we only got 40 to 50 bips left of expansion or mm-hmm. of rise in the long end of the curve. That should be a gradual rise, which will allow equities to, to move higher. But fabulous question. I hope that kind of explained it in a nutshell. It, the nuance is a bit more complex, but I think the high level um, 
you know, it was communicated in, in what I just said. Awesome. Uh, our next question comes from Chubby Daniels. And uh, he's asking, why are you selling this stock with no fundamentals to your subscribers? Disappointed. Um, I think he's talking about what we talked about last week with Lucid. And uh, basically, what I want to follow up real quick is, you know, we, we talk about a lot of things on this podcast. And when it comes to investing, you know, we, we always say don't invest anything that you're not willing to lose. Uh, but to people that see how passionate you are about uh, any given stock, uh, you know, it can come off as being a hype man in some cases. Uh, I think that we do a really good job of explaining why you uh, choose the picks that you have. But what do you have to say to, you know, the people that kind of see that in what we're talking about sometimes? There are two ways to look at a stock. Mm -hmm. What is there and what will be there? And the way I look at stocks is what will be there mm -hmm. because that's how you make big money in stocks. If you look at a company and you look at its balance sheet, and you look at its financial statements and you say, okay, Lucid's only sold a couple hundred cars. Uh, Lucid's running wide losses. What is there is pretty ugly. You're going to stay away. Then you're never going to be investing in the next big thing. You're going to be forever. You're, you're investing with a rear view window mm -hmm. and you know, that's a really bad way to invest. Uh, the way we invest is by investing by looking out the front window, which for what it's worth is a lot bigger than the rear view window. Mm -hmm. um, so we're looking out the front window and we're seeing what will be there. And when we look at Lucid, we see a company that has the ability to have enormously positive and strong fundamentals. We see a company that due to its technological advantage, due to its backing from the Saudis, due to its unrivaled team of electric vehicle engineers, will sell a ton of cars. Tesla volume number of cars by 2027, 2028, 2029. Mm. At that point in time, the company will have tens of billions of dollars in revenue. We'll be running at 30% gross margins. We'll have 15% or 20% plus operating margins. We'll have hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in net profits. And the company will be worth $100 billion or more. So we want to invest before that happens because mm -hmm. that's where the big gains happen. Yeah. Right? If you're always looking in the rearview mirror, you're always going to be shooting behind the duck. We want to shoot well ahead of the duck. We want to get there before the duck turns into something enormous. And that's what we do with Lucid. That's what we do with all of our stocks. Uh -huh. um, we don't like to invest in the present. Investing is not a present day thing. It's a future thing. It's a future thing. We like to invest in things that will be, not things that are. Mm -hmm. Open door will be the Amazon of houses. SoFi will be the Amazon of finance. Uh -huh. Lucid will be the next Tesla. We invest in those things before they get to that point because by doing that, we put ourselves in a position to make 10 times, 20 times, 30 times our money. If you waited for Tesla to scale its operations with the Model 3 before investing in it, you missed out on 2,000, 3,000% gains. If you waited for Amazon to become the e-commerce behemoth it is today, you missed out on thousands of percent of gains. If you waited for Microsoft to become the computing giant it is today, you missed out on thousands of percent of gains. The people who made big money in those stocks were those who had the foresight and the courage to see what wasn't there and invest in what could be. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. And that's why we have a very bullish stance and a very high conviction stance on a lot of companies that we invest in. Uh -huh. These are not things we are trying to pump. These are not the, yep. I, I personally do not own any stock in any of these companies. Let it be well known is actually given the, the contract that I have, it is illegal for me to do that. Mm -hmm. So I do not own any positions in any of the stocks that I am, I am talking about. I believe in them beyond all of my, I mean, literally they're my highest conviction picks and I wish I could put everything I have into a lot of these stocks because I think they're going to make people a lot of money in the long run. And I believe that they are the most fabulous companies on planet earth run by the most genius people on planet earth. And that in the long run, they're going to be the biggest stocks on the planet earth. So that's why I have high conviction. That's why it may sound like I'm overly enthusiastic about these things, but I'm just naturally an enthusiastic person who sees, uh, sees a future that is very bright for, for a lot of companies. And I want to invest in those companies before they realize that future before everyone else made their money too. And again, so, that, that's that, my, little, my little pitch there. 
Yeah, and again, that future isn't based around like I like the name of Lucid. You're do- you're doing the research. You're looking at the teams. You're looking at the technologies. You're looking at what their forward thinking is before you you know you're making these picks. And I think that that's also an important reiteration to our viewers and our listeners that these aren't. It's not just oh, I'm picking a name out of a hat or this is the hype name of the day. It's something that you're doing the research. You're getting into the weeds of really what these companies are about before. Uh, you even start want to start talking about it. Uh, yes, exactly. There is a tremendous amount of research that goes into every single company that we speak about on here. I, I firmly believe that our team is the most knowledgeable team on the stocks we talk about mm-hmm. um, in, in, in the analyst universe um, because we really understand the technology at, at a core level. And so what, what do we invest in? We invest in things that today have developed a technology that is positively impacting the lives of people across the globe. And two, have the team in place and the talent in place to scale and grow that technology into something that is truly world-changing on a ubiquitous level. Um, Lucid is that. Mm-hmm. Uh, SoFi is that. Open Door is that. We've talked about QuantumScape before. QuantumScape is that. These are companies that you know really have game-changing technology and have some of the smartest people on the planet de- continuing to scale that technology and have the potential to become really, really, really big companies in the long run. I want to be invested in those. I think they're great long-term things. So that's what we talk about. That's what I get super excited about. Um, if it comes across as pumping, I apologize. This is really just me being excited about the future because the future mm-hmm. is a really exciting thing. And in a world where you can buy and sell a home online as easily as you can buy and sell a book, that's a pretty dope future in yeah. a future where everything finance consumer banking related can be done from your smartphone with basically zero fees. That's a pretty awesome future mm-hmm. in a future where there's a battery, a solid state battery that can allow your Tesla or your Lucid or your Rivian or whatever electric car you own to drive for thousands of miles without needing to recharge. That's a pretty amazing future. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I get excited about these things because they're pretty amazing. And they're the core technologies that will allow us to build a better tomorrow. I want to be invested in that. Things that make the world a better place as it happens <laughs> tend to be the things that make investors a lot of money too. Mm-hmm. So we're invested in those things. I get excited about those things, but I honestly believe that their stocks are fantastic long-term investments. Well, I know that excitement is infectious because I feel the same way about when I hear you talk about these things. Um, again, as always, this has been a great discussion. Do you have any last words before we wrap? Uh, no, not particularly. I think I just kind of went on a big uh, preachy monologue uh, <laughs> still at the end there. So, no, I've, I've said all I needed yep. to say today, Aaron, but thank you. Awesome. Well, we want to thank everybody for listening. If you have any questions or comments for Luke, please leave them in the comments section. We'd love to hear your feedback on uh, any questions you have for Luke and topics you'd like us to cover uh, and see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Uh, Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you next week. Bye, y'all.